0: You're listening to the Team Science Podcast.
1: For all those who are listening for the first time, welcome to the Team Science Podcast. My name is Benjamin. I'm currently a Vice Principal and Head of Science in the Northwest. And I set up Team Science at the end of 2017 as a vehicle to try and help stimulate dialogue and discussion between all those who are involved within science education. And to try and bring the science teaching community closer together through the online network. We've also tried to give all the great ideas and discussions that so many of you have day in and day out as much publicity as possible. Welcome to episode four of the Team Science Podcast. Thanks for joining us. This episode is going to look at kind of two themes that we think kind of work well together. The first is going to be looking at research in pedagogy and in education. The idea of how much of what we do day to day in all of our lessons or planning or delivery is based on research, on how pupils learn and the most effective strategies. Or how much of it is just speaking with colleagues and seeing, OK, that works well with my class. Do you want to try it with yours? How much is just kind of anecdotal? You know, you get that warm, fuzzy feeling. You feel something's working. But um, how do we know it actually is? So the first idea is that research aspect. The second we're going to be looking at, and we've seen it pushed quite a lot recently, whether it's through the Twitter sphere or whatever it might be, is this idea of literacy, how we can make our pupils as scientifically literate as possible. So we're going to be looking at those two issues of research-based pedagogy and also scientific literacy, not having it as a bolt-on, but having it embedded and uh, woven through everything that we do. So at this point I'd like to introduce our guest. Um, Today we're joined by Phil Naylor, who's the Assistant Director at Blackpool Research School. Uh, Phil's taught science for 17 years um, and among other things is a former advanced skills teacher, an ITT and NQT professional mentor uh, and a primary school governor. And Phil is currently the Assistant Director of the Blackpool Research School, as well as an expert advisor for the Teacher Development Trust and currently studying for a master's in science. How do you find the time, Phil?
0: Yes, it's a good question, Ben. I'm not quite sure, to be honest. But uh, yeah, try to fit it all in.
1: Yeah, just keep going while you can. Uh, where are you studying that master's, by the way, just out of curiosity?
0: Uh, I'm doing it through the Open University. I thought that was probably the best way to fit it around everything else that you described at the beginning. So it's mainly sort of an evenings and the weekends distance learning approach.
1: Sure, sure. I've just a few people on Twitter have been asking about that now, but it's useful to obviously speak to someone who's doing something similar. Um, So some of our listeners may want to know a bit more kind of like about you and kind of, you know, what makes you tick and what your kind of milestones are. So I was hoping you'd be able to tell everyone who's listening a bit about maybe your current role in education, and especially thinking in terms of that research and, you know, how you're trying to bridge the gap between classroom practice and, you know, kind of published research
0: yeah absolutely well in terms of uh, the journey to this point I suppose it's a bit of a cliche but I've always been sort of passionate about science um, I came from a family that, that are kind of into their science if you like so mm-hmm. my dad um, he was into biology so he had a degree in that My mum was a lab technician in a school yep. so kind of uh, a family of scientists if you like sure um, I've been teaching science for 18 years now uh, four schools but I actually started my career as a football coach Ben, believe it or not okay, um, people, people wouldn't believe it now to be honest but uh, <laughs> I kind of ran both of those careers in parallel. I even managed to get in the UA for a licence. Okay. So um, that was quite a prestigious thing to get. I was on the course with people like Peter Beardsley, Roy Keane, but I don't want to go about football. on science. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: yeah.
0: Uh, I kind of ran those together for um for a few years. And then, of course, children came along and and certain promotions as well. And it became a bit difficult to kind of find the time to do everything. Sure. Um, so I kind of set my into back into the science. So my current role sort of linked to... to to the research I've got sort of lots of different strands as you've explained at the beginning so um, what they call um, the assistant director of the Blackpool research School so that's an IEE Institute for effective education mm-hmm. and the, EF, the education endowment Foundation project trying to get evidence and research based practice in schools. So it's kind of the weird the bridge between academic institutions and schools kind of distilling that evidence and getting it into Practical ways to use it teaching in the classroom.
1: Sure.
0: I'm also um, working for the Teacher Development Trust, which, you know, these two roles work very, very nicely together, I think. And um, that role is working with senior leaders across 10 schools in Blackpool, getting into schools and looking at evidence and research based solutions to whole school um, issues. Mm. So I, I can work with your leaders in kind of a coaching capacity to bring those things through. But as I say, you know, when I go out and talk about, uh, you know, science and, and, and upcoming science guidance, first and foremost, I'm still a science teacher. You, know, you, you get a lot of people that are coming out, advisors, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I am one of those people for a couple of days a week. But first and foremost, I'm a real-life science teacher in front of students mm. uh, three days a week at the moment, um, exclusively year 11, actually, for next year. Okay, so that's still part and of the, the job.
1: Okay, perfect. Yeah, so like you say, a really varied kind of background, but yeah, kind of still rooted in the classroom, which I guess is really important for this. Um, so kind of just some of your views on the show. Before we kind of invited you on, we were saying this this uh, podcast has a bit of a theme behind that kind of research aspect, and then we're obviously going to delve into a bit of kind of literacy and how we can do that from a scientific like pedagogy point of view. Um, so what is it that made you want to kind of go down that Research route, you know, whether it's working with the Teacher Development Trust or obviously Blackpool Research School, kind of assistant director there. What made you want to take that line of inquiry, really?
0: Yeah, uh, well, I mean, I think as a scientist, we're already pretty well versed and used to the approach of kind of using evidence and research to solve problems. Mm. You know, we, we always learn to look sort of test our hypothesis, analyze our results, and I think we're quite iterative scientists in terms of our approaches. and We welcome any scrutiny of any activities that we're doing. So, you know, I, I look back to when I started to. Teaching and I kind of put it as the, the golden age of educational fads, you know, the early 2000s, where we are always provided with solutions, almost mm. looking for problems in a way. And, and as a new teacher, then I kind of embraced all of that, you know, and I ran with them things like brain gym, yeah. learning styles, and, and, you know, the yeah. outstanding lesson checklist, that thing. But in the last few years at St. Mary's, I've, I've been a professional mentor for the ITTs, for our MQTs, mm-hmm. working with them pretty closely. And what, what I found is that the decisions that we're making from good teaching based too much on ideology, kind of hunch, fads, gimmicks, you know, some data-informed stuff as well. Um, And I guess the the sort of the low point for this, in my opinion, um, came when I observed an ITT session on sort of engaging teaching strategies. And it was very well-intentioned, very well, you know, prepared and Mm -hmm. and loved by the trade, but it involved them using um, (laughs) sort of a popular game of the time, encouraging students to play like revision beer pong. Sure. Which, you know... I walked out of the session thinking, hmm, this is like learning styles. And I tried it with my students, and I thought, if anything, this this is enjoyable, but it's distracting from the teaching. It's not enhancing the teaching. Mm. There must be another way to kind of get these things across. And at the same time, um, my executive uh, head teacher, Stephen Teaney, and people might be familiar with Stephen in terms of uh, Twitter, Mm -hmm. that leading on Twitter, he's at the absolute cutting edge of of everything. Basically, but he was applying for St. Mary's to become a research school. He okay. advertised to the SLT, and to be honest with you, Ben, I didn't, I didn't know a great deal about it at the time. Sure. So I did some research of my own and I looked into it and what a research school was. And I went and looked at the EES website. Uh, I was familiar with the toolkit, you know, I'd used the toolkit mm. as a senior lead in terms of decision making, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I looked onto it, I thought, you know, I'll do some further research. And I went onto YouTube and looked at to Sir Kevin Collins, who's the chief executive of uh, the EEF and he kind of outlines his epiphany on the use of evidence and research and it kind of brought it all together for me and mm-hmm. want to apply for it. He said that when he started teaching, and this is, I'm sort of paraphrasing his story so if <laughs> sure. I'm not exactly right, he said he, he made his way down the corridor on the first day of teaching and the students had to turn left and they came to him as an inexperienced NQT and they came turn right and the experienced, he would have Janice instead, mm-hmm. who was a much more experienced member of staff. And it struck him that these pupils, and he was working in a very sort of, difficult area in London, lots of disadvantaged students, mm. that they had a much better deal with Janice because she had years of, of knowing what works, yeah. tried and tested and refined things. And, and if it turned to him, he was kind of new. He didn't know what worked best. And he thought, well, that's great. The students will make progress with both. But surely to goodness, You know, it, it, we know what kind of things work. There's a mm. lot of academic research. And evidence out there and what kind of things are more likely to work what are the best bets out there yeah i you know, wasn't saying that everything that's based on evidence and research is going to work but there's some things that are much more likely and we know this, mm. so, this kind of things should be in the hands uh, of all teachers
1: yeah yeah and, mm.
0: you know it's kind of struck me well this is something that i'd like to get involved as a scientist you know we're very lucky at st mary's but we're well stocked with with scientists steven tino mentioned our executive director he's a scientist yeah um, the head teachers, scientists, typically there's lots of us a scientists. So we're kind of naturally interested in, in research and evidence. And I applied for the job, and, and it's been a massive learning curve. And, you know, from, from you know, the colleagues i am working with the EEF and the IE would say this, you know, to try and get back to becoming involved in this, both as a student and an assistant director. But it's been a really exciting thing. And mm-hmm. we're doing a lot of work with teachers black Blackpool are very, very keen to get involved in this. So it, we're still on the journey. Yeah. Steep learning curve, we're still working on. It.
1: Yeah, I think it's um it's interesting. I there's very few professions I think uh, like kind of education and teaching where you could argue in a lot of classrooms uh, a lot of the practice that you see could be down to just like, you know, hearsay say speaking to other colleagues or you just feel it's the right thing to do and in a lot of cases you you feel that way probably because it's tried and tested and you've been in the classroom for 20 years and that's fine but like you say those new teachers who are coming into the classroom it's kind of like are they just fitting in with the school's policies you know they're always doing what they've always done or is it kind of is it based in anything and that's kind of leads me on to my next question a little bit so with your experience of kind of research itself and obviously what education's like in the uk How well do you think, just obviously broad brushstrokes, how well do you think teachers know about the research that actually underpins probably some of the teaching that they're doing day in and day out?
0: Well, I think the EF and the IE, the research schools, are making massive progress in terms of getting that across Mm. to to a lot of teachers. You know, they're very, very strong with the communication. There's a lot of guidance reports that that teachers will be familiar with. Lots of stuff last year with, uh, you know, best practice in maths. There's lots of best use of teaching assistants and lots of work with literacy as well. I think it, I think it's building. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, schools are starting to get involved in that. You know, obviously, I would say for Blackpool, we're we very, very well on with this now. Yeah. You know, there's been lots of engagement, lots of interest with lots of schools across Blackpool who want to get involved. I think that if you bring it back to science, I think that science teachers probably well used to the process of research, you know, on a daily basis in the classroom. Mm-hmm. In terms of our kind of research literacy. You know, some science teachers are experts in the fields. You know, we've got people in my departments who've got doctorates, who've got masters, that kind of thing. Sure. And, and lots of them engage with professional associations and organisations. You know, I'm a member of the ASE, for mm-hmm. example. Yeah. Uh, they produce research articles, which, are, you know, they're, they're very applicable to the classroom.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And a lot of science, obviously you'll find this as well, mm-hmm. a lot of them are engaging their own professional development through things like Twitter. So yeah. I think they do come across that. And there's a lots of them with... The research ed movement. Yeah. Yeah. I mean the, the research ed was trying to promote that of research literacy with teachers. And you see these events, you know, sort of on a monthly basis where hundreds of teachers are going out on a Saturday, presenting, sharing information, working with each other. So it's really, really coming and, and there's some fantastic scientists on that circuit.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah.
0: You know, last year we presented we had one research ed Blackpool which went extremely well. And we got three hundred people coming along to that. So I think that, you know, teachers are becoming much more you know, much more well versed in the use of, of research, much more research literate, if you like, and particularly science teachers. We've still got a lot of work to do. Yeah. You know, I saw an article only this week about in in a new uh, presentation around learning styles. And, you know, a lot of the evidence and research around learning styles says that they don't necessarily work, it's not the best way to do things, but yeah. the myth prevails. So we've still got a lot of work to do, mm-hmm. but we are we're well on with it.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, you're right. I think. I think Twitter's like fantastic. So I, I saw a link well, a few months ago and it links in with today. It was all, it was uh, from the journal from the Chartered College of Teaching and it was the deepening knowledge through vocabulary learning. And just that simple five pages can then send you on like this, uh, kind of this trail of other research or interesting thoughts or books or people you want to kind of pick the brains of. So I think if someone, it's kind of my next question too. you is working quite well, actually. If someone was thinking, okay, I want to, I want to find some research on how working in groups is beneficial or they just want to find some general um, it could be behavior management um, some people may think it's a bit of a needle in a haystack obviously those who might not have you know may not have been to university while well, you have things like google scholar or you know websites that uh, give you this information quite easily so how would you advise either science teachers or other subject teachers you know to start their kind of first journey into research that's out there or you know publish blog articles and so on where would you kind of point them
0: well, I mean, on a, on a first kind of port of call, I'd look for the EEF. So, I mean, I mentioned that their work before in terms of their guidance report and the way that they do distill that sort of research evidence down mm-hmm. into making it practical teach in the classroom. So there's lots and lots of guidance reports there. Yeah. Obviously, one of the reasons that we're speaking today is around the science guidance that's coming out very, very shortly. Sure. So, you know, one of my colleagues, Robin uh, Stevenson, who works at St. Mary's, has been on that panel, designed that resource along with other people. So science yeah. teachers, you know, look out for that. That's coming sort of mid-September time. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's one for science teachers. But generally, you know, your local research school, there are 22 of these across the country now who would love to work with schools and get in and work with teachers on making them more research literate or even just more aware of what, what there is out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd, I'd encourage schools to be involved with the teaching development. Development Trust, again, you know, obviously I'm seconded to work with them. So, you know, I, I, I'm a very big fan of their work and, and David Weston, their CEO. Mm-hmm. And they're good at getting into schools and looking at what kind of things are you doing, why are you doing those things, mm-hmm. what development look like and how much of it is steeped in that research and evidence. Okay. I, like I mentioned before professional associations, you know, the ASE, yep. I mentioned, the, you know, the Chartered College, yep. the Royal Societies as well, mm-hmm. Research Ed, those kind of events. And then there's obviously big people that you'd look for on Twitter, for example. So people like Dylan William would be a good starting point, kind of the, the, the guru of uh, educational research. So people mm-hmm. to kind of look at these these kind of things.
1: Sure. What we'll do is um, on the on the website that goes along with this podcast, we'll uh, we'll put all those links there so um, people can find all the information they need to. So kind of the last one before we get into like that literacy idea, you know, um, of what we're going to talk about, what you did on like that research ed circuit. You've obviously been... Uh, Quite closely working with the EEF, the Education Endowment Foundation. So kind of uh, what role do they play in this and kind of what's your relationship been like with them? How's that worked for you?
0: Um what well, what they do is they work with schools in a particular area. So we are the Blackpool Research School based that's at St. Mary. So we, we work with schools right across Blackpool, and obviously there are 21 others that are working with schools across their areas. Um, you know, they work with to help them make better use of evidence-based programs of practices through kind of regular communication I mentioned before and events they provide training professional development on how to improve the classroom practice on what we, you know the best available evidence in terms of our relationship with them it's been absolutely superb I mean you know I said it was just a steep learning curve for me personally to get mm. back into becoming research literate you know I, I did my my degree in the 1990s you know I'm sure, sure. so <laughs> it's a long time I've had a chance to do that but you know the development Developers and the team behind helping us do that have been fantastically supportive. You know, we are involved in a lot of these things, particularly the Science Guidance Report. You know, mm-hmm. Two of us have to be on the panel for delivering that, so our relationship's been fantastic. And I must just say as well, the relationship with head, head teachers across Blackpool, you know, we, we provide events for the, the Guidance Report launch, which has been you know, hundreds of people have come along to that classroom, teachers, teaching assistants, head teachers, you know, CEOs. There's a real appetite for, for this kind of evidence.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, yeah, the EEF, in terms of the toolkit, is incredibly useful as well. It'd be probably the first place I'd point staff in to have a look. Now, now that's kind of the research we've gone into. We've obviously just scratched the surface of it all, but all really useful stuff. And I think hopefully the people listening will have somewhere to go to, to kind of just look into that a bit more. Um, Having seen some of the materials that you've put together, or you and your team have put together, you know, kind of delivering as part of that research, Ed circuit Uh, we're just going to kind of discuss one of those areas and this one was with a focus on literature and science so i'm going to kind of just put some kind of headings to you and it'd be really good if you could kind of maybe give us a bit more detail in terms of what that might look like in the classroom this idea of how we can you know stop literacy being a bolt-on and how we can weave it and embed it in our everyday teaching so do you want to give us just like a, a brief overview of what this package was in terms of the literature and science and, you know, the, the slides that you've been delivering across the country are all about?
0: Yeah, I mean, as I said before, the science guidance is due to be uh, launched around sort of mid-September time, but not long away now. Um, what I've been able to do through being involved with sort of the party on this is to give people a flavour of what kind of things I think will be on the guidance. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not allowed to be to say what the guidance will be at this stage, but sure. you can kind of think that's going to be probably about six areas that they are going to look at. One of which was was uh, literacy, so that's the one that you know, I've been going out and talking about alongside use of practical work, modelling the two areas. Mm-hmm. But the literacy is really interesting because a lot of schools are kind of developing you know literacy across the school, and it's quite interesting to kind. of and put it from a scientific point of view, and what we could do, and it's exactly what you said. What teachers can do practically in the classroom. So, in terms of those kind of areas, uh, do you want me to go into those now? In terms of the, the kind of subsections of the presentation,
1: I yeah, definitely. We'll go through them, and then I'll kind of just jump in with a few questions I have on some of them, if that's okay.
0: Of course, yeah, yeah.
1: So we've had um, the first one I've got here is teaching the meaning of scientific words. So, kind of why why was that something you wanted to share with people? What what does that look, kind of look like? Why would that be useful?
0: Right. Well, as we've talked about all the way through in terms of the evidence and the research behind that, so, so the research and evidence behind this from Nunes, which is a, a 2017 paper, mm-hmm. is that explicitly scientific words and text would benefit all pupils, especially those from kind of lower socioeconomic status backgrounds mm-hmm. who are probably less to come across those sort of tier three words. Yeah. Uh, and there's consistent strong correlations between pupils' literacy skills and the success in learning science. And, you know, there is evidence out there that improving literacy could lead to improved outcomes. Yeah. You have to be careful in terms of cancelating that as the only factor that's going to improve that because it's difficult correlation and cause, as we know. Yeah, definitely. In terms of teaching scientific words explicitly, you know, it's very important that we teach the meaning of particular words in their scientific context. So one of the examples I use, Ben, is, is field, for example. Sure. So field, you know, I mean, I, I gave you the sort of <laughs> the possible history of my career at the beginning (laughs) you know, you could be talking about football yeah you could be talking an area of specialism you know you could be talking about it in in terms of magnetic so let's look at those words and make sure that we teach them explicitly in in the scientific context
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and and
0: you know there's many ways to reinforce that but we at saint mary's and and our head of science is very very big on using knowledge organizers i know that this is kind of used across lots of
1: schools sure sure
0: use them really quite systematically I and mean, all the blackpool schools are at the kind of using those as well mm-hmm. so we would send pupils with a particular you know taxonomy of words if you like for that particular topic right through from year seven um, up to, to the GCSEs mm-hmm. and we'd, um, you know the homework would be to go home look at those words you know do some preparation around the meaning of those words and then we'd do a low stakes test at the beginning of the lesson now the evidence and the research would say it's important that it's a low Mm. stakes test so we're not recording the result Yeah. Um, but we're looking at those improving over time so once it's introduced we then try and put the word into a context as well so we're trying to make sure that they're not just learning the definitions and they don't understand its application mm. so we're trying to put it into you know scientific context now i recently presented at uh, derby's research conference and had lots of interesting conversations with colleagues who kind of questioned the next part so i would be interested in your thoughts on this sure uh, um, We've looked at then moving the words into what we call kind of authentic science texts. So There's some research from Hall and Hardy in 2003 that say using you know, these rich texts, which you kind of sections science textbooks, could be news articles,
1: mm-hmm.
0: it could be it could even be research papers. Sure, I'm putting them into those kind of scientific contexts to ensure that people have got that understanding, because you know there's evidence as well to say that you need to know up to 95% of words in a comprehension kind of activity to be able to access it yeah we know that questions are moving down that kind of way. if they don't understand the words they can't access the question so we're trying to do definitions scientific context but also make sure that they understand it in the broader comprehension as well
1: yeah i mean i just again through twitter and looking at exam papers from this summer exam season that's just gone i know there was a biology question on um it was on oyster's And the amount of pupils who, and again, it's not surprising, who maybe in their, uh, you know, in their 15, 16 years on this earth have never come across an oyster or even read it in a book. But the idea of you can't just teach, I I don't think you can teach the scientific words, like you say, in isolation. We then need to put them into some, yeah, rich text where they're probably getting all other kinds of words or experiencing them for the first time. Um, Another example was, um, we were talking about this at Our Trust, it was *To Kill a Mockingbird*, and um, they were talking about Atticus went to the bar, obviously from a legal sense. But again, if you if you haven't seen that word ever before, you know it's not necessarily a scientific word or specific to English, but it's something that they're going to need to at least read, have seen, or experienced, or engaged with, or something. So yeah, no, I, I, I that kind of makes sense to me. The idea of we teach you the word, there's the definition, but then we're going to see it in another context or another scientific context. That does that does make sense, yeah. Um, so yeah. you know, you know, you were talking about those th- the tiers of words. Yeah. Um, how how would that tiering system be put together? Is it already out there? Is it something that has to be done teacher by teacher and depending on pupils? Like, how do you construct that tiering system of words?
0: Uh, again, we're like <laughs> very fortunate. We're working with Alex Quigley. Um, people might be familiar with Alex Quigley. He's yeah. quite big on Twitter. As well, uh, um, Hunting in English is his handle there. Yeah. And, and I've spoken to him quite a lot around sort of the, the sort of literacy bit and then try to apply it to science so the, the tiering would work in terms of you know tier one would be everyday speech uh-huh. tier two would be sort of general academic words and then tier three would be sort of domain specific or in our context scientific words okay and trying to put you know all of those together and break those down for the students
1: okay i gotcha so it'd be something that yeah so domain specific words yeah general academic and then everyday speech yeah okay that makes sense um Was there anything else in terms of meaning of words, or are we okay to jump onto that kind of next subsection?
0: Just to recommend a couple of books for for listeners um, in terms of the work of Willingham. I know a lot of people are familiar with Daniel Willingham's work, uh, a couple of books that I would recommend there. Uh, Why Don't Students Like School is one, and The Reading Mind is the other. Mm -hmm. Those are kind of informing a lot of the CPD that we are doing in, in the science department to try and tackle what you said about those exam questions, to make sure that students are understanding those words across all the areas and then the scientific specific words on top of that
1: yeah perfect okay no that's useful i'll put that in the uh, in the uh, blog as well so the next one was um how are words built up now just reading that title is that from like a etymology point of view like the roots of parts of words or is it something a bit different
0: no it is yeah exactly that and and other parts as well so in terms of you know, the evidence there's good evidence for positive impact of people's understanding uh, the morphemic structure of words, so breaking them down can, can explain the words, things like electrolysis, mm-hmm. you know, also synthesis is another one that we kind of use quite a lot of, with scientists. Yeah. Um, electrolysis, you can also put the kind of context of that as well around, so it's another lysis word obviously, yeah. but the origin, you know, the anode and cathode would mean way up way down. You know, if you go onto a Greek bus, for example, you, you can see those words there. So you're giving students the context of that. But it's kind of breaking it down. Read it, explain it, divide it up, and then say it. Okay. So this is this is called REDS, which was um, working special educational uh, needs work originally, but it's very applicable you know, to science
1: as well. Sure. Uh, just on this one, like in a, obviously you say you're going to year 11 focus next year. How long, uh, this is like a common question I hear, how long do you spend on, say you have a lesson and you've got, okay, I've got three keywords in this lesson and they're, you know, uh, they're not just every day, they're tier three words. How long would you spend on those, do you think? Or how many times would you revisit them? Or do you know what I mean? It, something like away from the content and more just focusing on the words.
0: It's a really interesting question something that we're looking to develop as well. So in terms of the feedback that we get about this podcast, It'd be to see why people are going to apply this mm-hmm. um, because we're going to put the guidance out there and see what they do in their own context. In terms of what we're doing, so we're very well embedded with the knowledge organizers yeah. and the law states quizzing. We're going to look to have a section of the lessons, in, and, and, and uh, we run 100. Million. So we're going to look at a section of that lesson, it's going to be engaging with these scientific texts. So, in terms of how many times do we go over it in a particular word, well, they're going to come across it in all these different texts throughout mm-hmm. that particular topic. Mm-hmm. So, we wouldn't like to put a particular amount of time on it. But there's certainly going to be lots of activities where, you know, they're going to engage with that text as well, which is one of the things I'm going to come to later on as well.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, the next one um, was the one I've got here it might be a bit different to you, but I've got one that says don't dumb it down.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the section of around don't dumb it down is to try and, you know, as we said about building these literacy skills. So when I talked about you know, authentic scientific text, mm-hmm. it was really interesting, like I said, in, in Darby, when I spoke to, to colleagues there. And they said you've got to be careful with using sort of older scientific textbooks, mm-hmm. which is something that there because some of the definitions for words and the example they gave, and it you know it was a good one, was osmosis for example, and mm-hmm. how that definition of the word has changed over time wouldn't meet exam board criteria now. Yeah, so in terms of not dumbing it down, it's stretching students, you know, literacy with particular thing, so it could be that if you're looking at a year 11 high achieving group it could be you could look at research papers you could look at authentic you know textbooks yeah that kind of thing so it was it was stretching students you know to the absolute limits of what they can cope with was the reason behind the don't but don't dumb it down
1: yeah yeah so with this um like you say with engaging these pupils with text i found a a useful resource i can't remember where from but i'll find it but on the website where it was for like a, a journal club so for like A level pupils, there was you know some quite easy to I wouldn't say easy to access, but you know some of the papers from Watson and Crick. When even though they're from you know earlier at the uh, uh, you know early nineteen hundreds, we can still use those as part of our A level classes. So kind of where would you you're saying like high ability year elevens or any year group? Kind of how would you engage pupils with different texts? Are there some we like no, it's just not worth it. That is definitely too advanced. Or can you take certain parts from certain things? How would you kind of? you know, point people out for that?
0: Well, again, uh, as a department, we've um, actually gone through and looked at particular, you know, older textbook, research papers, you know, even newspaper articles as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's quite, you know, a newspaper articles, for supplements that you can use for students there. But it's very much a work in progress that we're looking at as well. So in mm-hmm. terms of directing people, I would say, like I said, as long as it's an authentic, scientific, rich text, You know, the guidance report when it comes out will provide you with what kind of things to look for there and where to find them.
1: Sure. And then when you found that, obviously for some staff, it's going to be, and for pupils, it's going to kind of be teaching pupils how to actually read those texts. So are there any kind of tips on that? So after you've gone through as a department, you've gone, yeah, okay, these textbooks are fantastic, or this excerpt from this peer reviewed journal article is really good, or this newspaper article, is there anything we can do to help the pupils actually reading them?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one of the things we look at is engaging people with the text. So, you know, there's there's a whole scale of things we can do here in terms of, you know, things like like the literacy report that came out at Key Stage 2 advises things like guided oral reading. The teachers can model the reading of the text. People can read aloud and give them sort of appropriate feedback with that. Mm -hmm. Repeated reading, chorus reading. But you can Mm -hmm. also use things like uh, darts, so directed activities related to text. Mm You can use obvious like locating and highlighting specific information
1: yeah.
0: and fill in the blanks with missing words. You could use jumbled up text, you know, ask students to put the text back into the correct order. Mm-hmm. You can ask students to analyse the text, you know, create make it into a picture, a flowchart, a mind map, or even to, to rewrite a particular text. So you mentioned the Cliff and Watson paper. Mm-hmm. I mean, you ask students to rewrite that for a particular audience, maybe a younger audience or a different purpose, and get them to really engage with that text and yeah. kind of build their
1: Yeah, they're all really actually really good ideas there. And obviously it varies It what might be from the outset, you go, ah, oh, just doing more reading. You can actually incorporate it into loads of activities to, you know, have that engagement and, you know, hopefully pull more people in there. So um, before we move on to the next section, was there anything else that you thought would be worth, you know, kind of sharing with the people who are listening in terms of, you know, that evidence base just with that literacy focus?
0: And um, Just like I mentioned there, there are a couple of books that I'd recommend people look at. You know, you've got Doug Reading Reconsidered as well. I'd, I'd suggest that they follow people like Alex Quigley on Twitter mm-hmm. you know, and, and try and just engage with people at the forefront of, of literacy. I'm not claiming to be at the forefront of that. It's, just, it's one section within you know, the science guidance report that we're going to look at. So really engage with those people who are kind of the experts in that.
1: Perfect. OK, then. So kind of after we've gone into kind of the meat of the podcast, we always ask the guests the same three questions. And you've not seen these before, so they'll hopefully take you a bit by surprise, but not give you too much stress. Um, so the first one for you, Phil, is if you could make a 30 second advert or announcement that was going to go around to all staff rooms on the first day back in September, what would you have that advert or announcement say to all those teaching staff up and down the country?
0: <laughs> wow. Um, okay. I suppose it would be that, you know, engage with your local research school, mm-hmm. you know, look at guidance reports and try and make, you know, more of your decisions and not suggesting all of your decisions, whether it be a school leader or a classroom teacher on the available evidence, you know, and look to measure its impact. Let's kind of have less fads, less gimmicks, and more evidence based practice. Perfect. That would be a sort of 30 second rather dull advert, probably, for the first day of-
1: no, 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 I'm sure no, people would pick up on that. It'd save them some time, hopefully, in the long run as well. OK, um, the second one was, what advice would you give yourself at the beginning? And we'll, we'll keep it to your teaching career. What advice would you give yourself at the beginning of your teaching career? Uh, OK, um, that's what I think. Well,
0: I'm a big fan of films uh, and I'm a regular listener to um, like a devotee of the church of Kermode and Mayo, I don't know if you, if you listen listened to that, no. and, the, and the advice I suppose would be, uh, everything will be alright, you know, I was a big worrier, what if I do this, what if I don't do this, what's going to happen, and I think that a lot of the staff, and I work with a lot of new staff, you know, they, they do worry, and they do think about that at the beginning of the career, well, what if I change that, what if I go with that, you know, what's going to be the impact, you, know, you are going to cope, it will be okay in the end, and, you know, I've been happy with the journey to be honest, yeah. I could have done a lot less worry as well, I yeah. suppose.
1: Yeah, I think that's especially this kind of time of the year, you know, results a few weeks away. I think a lot of people could do a lot of good for themselves, you know, trying to remove that worry. Um, Okay, and the the last one, what one thing do you always or should you always tell your non-education kind of based friends is the best part of your job? So what one thing do you always tell your non-education based friends is the best part of your job?
0: Well, this is an easy one, Ben. I mean, it's, it's working on a day to day basis. With the students, mm-hmm. you know, I never want to. The classroom. I've been a senior leader now for almost 10 years, and I've always wanted to stay in the classroom. Mm-hmm. You know, particularly, I'm going to say this as well, particularly in Blackpool. I think Blackpool kids are the, are the absolute best. Mm-hmm. You know, they're so open, so welcoming, so honest. The best thing is that I'd never want to leave that. I want to continue to work with them, seeing them progress, and, and it keeps me feeling alive and useful as I slip into old age as well. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, definitely. That's a good one, a good answer for that one. Okay, so just kind of drawing it up there, so kind of like a bit of a call to arms. Um, of all this fantastic content that's kind of you're part of, uh, you produce or you deliver and so on, or you're, you know, you're kind of chairing on, where could the people listening find more information about that content that's produced either from you, the EEF and so on?
0: Uh, well, if you want to go um, onto, onto Twitter and look for Blackpool Research School, obviously you can look for, for me as well and we'll, we'll share those details on there. Uh, We've got our own website as well, which I can share the link with you for that. And just engage with EF, um, IEE, and and all those organizations. And anything that we've talked about today, if you want to get in touch, I'd be happy to share any resources, any information that we've got. Uh, If you want that, yeah, get
1: in touch. Perfect. So, yeah, we'll include all the information in the description of the podcast. And if anyone's listening on the Anchor app, then feel free to leave a voicemail or question and we can get it over to Phil to answer. So I'd like to take this opportunity, Phil. Thanks ever so much for the time on this sunny Sunday afternoon, you know, speaking with us on our fourth podcast. Hopefully we can share the great work you and your colleagues have put together through our website. And thanks again for all your time. No problem. Thank you very much, Ben. We'd like to thank you for downloading this podcast and a special thanks for everyone who made this particular episode possible. If you want to find out more about team science or any of the topics that we've discussed in this episode, you can find all the details over on our website, which is teamscienceedu.co.uk, or you can go to our Twitter page at teamscienceedu.